How we doing? Did you guys have a good Christmas? Yes. Me too. Jesus. Today is a gift from you. And so we receive it. And we ask by the power of your spirit that we would be here, not worried about what tomorrow may bring, not anxious about our future, not being drugged down by guilt and shame over our past, but we'd be here, ready to receive the good gift of your word, the engrafted seed that's able to transform us. We pray that we would be a people that are both careful listeners and obedient servants. It's not hearing that changes us. It's hearing and doing that makes us firmly founded on the rock, not on shifting sand. So may we carefully listen, responding to what your spirit presses into us and being obedient. And I pray that every single one of us in here could hear whispered into our souls tonight as we lay our head on our pillows, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into rest. So speak May we listen and obey. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So Wednesday nights, we simply teach through the Bible. And we are in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're at right now. So let me ask you a question, and it's about the theme in these last couple of chapters. Do you have rights? Do you have constitutional rights? Sure you do, right? We have these, as citizens of this country, guaranteed rights. If you have a job, if you're an employer or an employee, there are certain rights. You have the right to be paid. If someone doesn't pay you, you can take them to court and get your payment. You have that right. You have rights that now about 190 countries have said are basic human rights, correct? So we have these kind of rights, and there's a good part to that, but there's a bad part to it. And here's what was happening in the city of Corinth. They were all about their rights. So in chapter six, they were suing each other Right? You did something I don't like, so I'm going to sue you. That was chapter six. In chapter seven, it was marriage rights. I have certain marriage rights. And they were, this is what's right, and I'm going to take a stand on my rights. On chapter eight, I have the right to eat what I want, where I want, from whom I want, and I don't care if that makes you mad. 
That was chapter 8. So Paul is saying something in these chapters, and it's been subtle, and now it comes into focus in chapter 9. It's a theme of Paul. And what he's going to argue is this. Yeah, believers have rights, but we are to balance our rights with what is best for other people. So in chapter six about suing people, Paul just asked the rhetorical question, can't you be defrauded? What's so wrong with being defrauded if that's what's best for your brother or sister? In chapter seven, he says, can't you stay single for Jesus? That's what I'm doing. In chapter eight, he says this, about food, about eating, he says this. It's verse 13, the last verse in chapter eight. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I might make my brother to stumble. Paul says, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll become a vegan. That's wow for me, because I love a double-double from In-N-Out. I'm not doing that one. That's too far. But this is the idea. So Paul now is going to go into chapter 9, and it's kind of a hinged chapter. He's going to kind of summate what he's talking about. Chapter 10 will kind of wrap up the whole idea. But here he's defending this decision of, wait a second, Balance your rights as a believer in Jesus Christ with what's best for your brother, what's best with somebody else. Because isn't that what Jesus did for us? Did Jesus demand his right? No way. He went to the cross for you and me. Instead of making an answer, instead of defending himself, he kept his mouth quiet, right? So it's a brilliant chapter. Let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 says this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship to the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. This is the setup. Paul says this, I'm an apostle, a witness of Jesus Christ, who has an impacting ministry, fruitful ministry. And Paul says, you want proof of it? You're looking at yourself. The church that I founded in the city of Corinth. The fact that the city of Corinth had been transformed by the work of Paul in it, that it had been turned upside down, that's his proof. You guys responded to my calling. You responded to who I am. That's my proof. Do you know that people will respond to who you are, to your calling, to your giftings? Do you know that? I found that with my kids. Carissa, who's my oldest daughter, she was the guinea pig, right? She was the test case. 
So when she hit about eight years old, I had four kids at the time. Elijah, my son, was only about a year or two. So he was young. She realized how much I love Volkswagen buses. So she, this day she had this test for me. She said, dad, if there was a fire and you had a choice, would you save your Volkswagen bus or Elijah? I said, I'd save them both. I'd figure it out. No, dad, you can't do that. I said, of course I'd save Elijah. She said, okay, okay, okay. If there was a fire and you had a choice, would you save your Volkswagen bus or our dog, Chloe? Ooh. So I said, who would you save? I have never answered that question. I will not answer that question. I plead the fifth. What's she doing? She's responding to who I am, to my loves, to what I'm about, right? That's what people do. Paul says, you guys responded. You are the proof of who I am. Apostles were those that went out and formed new works and planted new churches. You're the proof who responded to who I am. I've noticed people that are praisers, they get other people to praise. People that are leaders, they get other people to follow them, right? People that are visionaries. What happens is other people catch the vision. They respond to who you are. Paul says this, you know who I am because I came to your city. I had an impact on it. And then he says, if people want to question my calling, question me, examine me, here's how they do it. He says, you can do it in three ways, three ways, by the other apostles how they do ministries, other occupations, what happens in those, and then finally, by the Bible itself. It's brilliant. You want to examine a guy? Paul says, here's how you do it. Number one, with the other apostles. Verse four, do we not have the right? Remember, this is all about rights. What rights do Paul have? What rights could Paul call on? Is Paul taking advantage of all of his rights? That's the whole argument here. He's asking Corinth to not, to be defrauded, to not sue people, to look at marriage differently, to look at eating, the most basic of things, to look at even eating differently. That's not about your rights. So he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take about a believing wife or as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Here's what Paul says. Compare me to the other apostles. When they go somewhere, when they do ministry, they bring their wife and their kids and it's all expense paid. And there's nothing wrong with that. Paul says, that's their right. They can do that. That's fine. Now, I think that may be abused today. I have a letter from 22 years ago. It's a writer. You know what a writer is? It usually goes out in front of a band, like a big band, and the writer is, when we come to your town, here's the requirements that we demand if we're going to play in your town. Well, this was a writer from a very well-known pastor that got leaked on the internet, and I still have it. And here was his demands 22 years ago. 
Number one demand if he's gonna come and teach at another church. Number one, deposit $10,000 in my bank account. That's 22 years ago. That'd be about 25 grand today. Step one. Step two, five, no, four first class tickets on an airline from my place to your place. Number three, when I arrive, I want a Mercedes S-Class 500 waiting for me. And then number four, I wanna stay in a five-star hotel as long as I'm there. Isn't that ridiculous? I'm like, I would do it for one first-class ticket. My family can write and coach, man, they're fine back there. <laughs> it's got out of control. There, there's a right to it, no doubt. I think it's gotta be balanced. It's kind of out of control. What Paul says is this, I didn't even do that. I didn't have my expenses paid. I worked for 18 months in this city of Corinth. He joins with this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and he sews tents day after day after day for 18 months to support his own ministry. On his lunch breaks, he would go over to a, it was just a school. He would borrow their school during lunch breaks teach the Bible there, and then go back to work in the evening. That's how Paul did it. How amazing is that? Paul says, I could have taken advantage of things. I didn't. All the other apostles do it this way. I worked. I sewed tents. I paid my own way. There was a while for me where that's how it was with me. I was working at Met One Instruments about 50 hours a week. And for a season... I was doing three different studies a week. A Tuesday morning at 6.30 at Tea Time Cafe. It no longer exists. It's now the hall. Uh, Thursday morning prayer group at 6.30 at Quick Time, the little oil change place by Safeway. And then a noon study at Pizza Hut. And there was times that I would come home from work, have to do things, and I would be studying till 12.30 at night for the next morning. It was tough. It was good though. It was pure. It was really amazing because I knew my motivations then. They're really pure. This isn't for a paycheck. This isn't to pay the mortgage. This is because the love of Christ constrains me. This is what I want to do. But I'm glad now that I can have time, more time. I'm not up till 1230 at night trying to figure out what I'm going to study. You guys have blessed me in that way. I appreciate it, right? Paul says, mm, I worked for it. I worked harder than the other 11. I could have taken this right. I chose not to. So if you're going to compare me, compare me to the other apostles. They took rights and it's fair and they could. I didn't. And then compare, compare me to other occupations. Look at verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Compare me to other occupations. What person goes to war and pays for it themselves as a soldier, brings their own gun, pays their own way? That doesn't happen. Who has a garden, a vineyard, and never eats from it? Right? Isn't the best part about having a garden going out there in August and just grabbing tomatoes and corn and a pepper and just eating them, right? That's what Paul's saying. Who has a flock of geese, or a flock of geese? <laughs> Who has a flock of sheep and doesn't drink the milk? 
Me, I'm not drinking sheep milk. You ever, you ever ate sheep cheese? Once. I was on business, I was in Spain. For lunch, we went to this little place and they brought out this like charcuterie board and we're eating away and I'm eating this cheese and I'm like, I thought it tasted good, but I'm like, what kind of cheese is this? And I had like four or five pieces. I thought that's interesting cheese, tastes good. And then I'm about to eat one more piece when the person I was there with said, oh, that's sheep's cheese. I took a bite of it. (gasps) With that in my mind, it tasted like I was licking the fur of a sheep. I could no longer eat it. Something changed in that moment. Like, that's what I was tasting. Sheep fur. Oh, I can't eat anymore. The idea, though, is simple. Every occupation, you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Compare me to the apostles. They had their way paid. I paid my own. Compare me to other occupations. Every occupation enjoys the fruit of their labor. And then compare me to Scripture, verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law, God's word, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul says, final thing, compare me to scripture. In Deuteronomy 24.4, God says, if you have an oxen who's treading out the grain, don't muzzle him. He should be, as he's working, able to sample and eat some of the grain. Take care of him, right? God would make Peter happy here, right? Care for your animals. Throughout the Bible, there's care for animals. God cares for his creation. Paul says, listen, if an oxen is that way, how much more you and me as humans? Same thing, right? In the temple, the priests that were bringing in the bread or the grain offerings or the sacrifices, each one of them was able to take part of it to either sell or to eat themselves. So in verse 14, he just sums it up. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's a right, Paul would say. Now, what does it mean to get your living by the gospel? Should I have a gold plane and be able to fly all over the world in my gold plane? I think it means you are to live just like the people 
that you minister to. Not above them in riches and not below them in poverty. Average, medium. So when I was in Vanuatu, it's one of the least developed countries in the world. When I was there, I lived just like the Nibans. So I taught the Bible there. I did not have a phone. We didn't have a phone. We didn't have a truck. We didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. Lived just like the people. I lived in a grass hut with coral ground that had all the problems of a grass hut and coral ground. I had to fight off the mill pods. There were these giant like seven, eight inch centipedes that have a bite that's just one step below a rattlesnake. One of the students got bit by one. He was laid up in a bed for three days. They're brutal. Had a black and white, the only poisonous snake in Vanuatu. It's a sneeze snake. End up in my little grass hut. But I lived just like the people. And I loved it. You know why? Because I wasn't the taxi for everybody. I wasn't the telephone operator for everybody. I wasn't the electricity guy for everybody. I had nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ to offer the people because I lived just like them. Now, should I do that in Grants Pass? Should I live in a grass hut with you know, coral ground and no water and no electricity? Should I do that here? No, right? I wouldn't fit in unless I lived in like Tekelma at the Treehouse Hotel or something, right? You live just like the people and the people live, okay. That's what Paul is saying. You live, you make a living from the gospel, right? But even Paul says, I didn't take advantage of that. I could have, it was my right, but I didn't take that. Now, why? Verse 15, but, transitional word, right? Could have taken these rights that the apostles do, that every occupation does, that the Bible says I could take, but I didn't, and here's why. I have made no use of any of those rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provisions. He says right there, listen, I'm not hinting that I want help now. You know, people can do that. Hey, Matt, I heard you went salmon fishing last weekend. Yeah, I've always wanted to go salmon fishing. I've never been salmon fishing in my life. My one bucket list that's left is to go salmon fishing with you. Oh, is there eight, right? Hint, 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 hint. I'm like, oh, great. I'm gonna take him salmon fishing. He's gonna snag me in the ear. We're both gonna fall out of the boat. We're gonna freeze and die, right? It's death or disappointment. Which one do I choose? Hint, hint. Paul's saying, I'm not doing that here. I have a bigger overarching thing I'm trying to get across to believers that we are to live differently, that it's not about our rights. It's also balancing that with what's best for our brother or sister. So Paul says, I'm not hinting here, I'm not trying to get something from you. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for a necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make use of my right in the gospel. Paul says, I'll sum it up like this. Can't stop, won't stop. 
this is who I am. I was called to be an apostle. I can't stop and I won't stop. And I'm happy to be doing ministry the way God is directing me to do it. Not like the other apostles, not like other occupations, not even like the Bible says I could. I'm happy to do it just like God has me doing it. Do you know that there are different valid ways of doing ministry? Like we can get all caught up in like methods that don't matter to me. To me, it's what's the goal, right? The best example of different methods working in the Bible is compare the ministry of Ezra and compare the ministry of Nehemiah because they had very similar circumstances. They were part of that exile that happened in Israel where they were taken over to Babylon across the desert. And they were there for 70 years. And then God said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. And both of them led convoys across the desert from Babylon, Iraq, all the way to Israel. But their methods were so different. Ezra, when he's about ready to lead a group of people across the desert, he knows it's dangerous and he's worried. But Ezra says, I would not ask the king for help. So I gathered all the people by the river and we prayed and fasted for three days and then God gave us a plan and we took off and we made it. Nehemiah, when he's making his plans to go across that same desert, he immediately raises his hand and says, king, can you help? Can you send some soldiers with me? And the king says, sure, I'll send some soldiers with you. And he makes it across. Which one's right? Both, right? I don't think it's wrong at all to pray and fast and seek the Lord. It's pretty good. I don't think it's wrong at all to say, you know what, I'm overwhelmed right now and ask for help. Both valid, right? When they get there, a couple years apart, Ezra gets there, he finds out that there's idolatry happening. The very sin that caused God to say, I'm done, you're going into Babylon, you're gonna go in exile for 70 years. And so Ezra's just heartbroken by that. He sits down in the temple and it says he pulled out his beard. The people saw him pulling out his beard and they're like, Ezra, what are you doing? And Ezra says, I'm brokenhearted because you guys are idolatrous. And the people repented and changed. Nehemiah comes, finds the same thing happening, idolatry. Nehemiah doesn't pull out his beard. It says he pulls out everybody else's beard and they repented. <laughs> Which one's right? Doesn't matter to me, I can't grow a beard. Do either one. Both, right? I think sometimes we get so caught up in methods, caught up in the outward parts. I don't like how they do praise, or I don't like the way that pastor dresses, or I don't like the big hair, or the suit. I don't care about that. Those are, to me, silly. What's the goal? Are they preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified? Preaching that he is the resurrected king of the universe who's coming to claim a kingdom and citizens of that kingdom. Are they true to scripture? Are they true to the Bible, right? Do they love God with their heart and their mind and their soul and their strength? Are they loving their neighbor as their self? To me, those are the things that matter. The rest of it, yeah, I could care less if you got a tattoo or a rip on your pants, if you're doing these things right. So Paul now has defended himself. You wanna examine me? Compare me to the apostles. 
Compare me to occupations. Compare me to the Bible. I'm doing, I took the higher road, Paul would say, above this. And now he says, here are my methods. Talk to you about other people's rights and what they do. Here are my methods. Two methods Paul gives us for how he does ministry. They're brilliant. Number one, he says, I'm all things to all people. Check this out. Verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. Brilliant. All things to all people. I am going to be a bridge builder, Paul says, to build bridges into different people's lives. And he gives four categories. First, the Jews. 2,000 years ago, Jews wouldn't let Gentiles in their house. If you want to have a meal with a Jewish person, you had to be Jewish. That's just the way things were. Changed since then, but back then, to get into a Jew's house, you had to be a Jew, right? So Paul says, no problem. I'll put on my Jewish gear. I'll walk in there. I'll do the, all the things, all the ceremonies, wash my hands, do all those things in order to get in there and have a conversation with Jewish people. This is cultural. Paul says, I will become culturally accommodating to people of different cultures. Do you know there's all these like micro cultures in America? Like I discovered this when I bought a motorcycle. Many years ago, like 2010, I think, I bought a crotch rocket, you know, murder cycle, whatever you want to call them. Very fast bike. And what I noticed very quickly was driving around every other person on a motorcycle would wave at you. It's like this kind of, what, I don't know, brotherhood of motorcycles or something, like saying bye to you because you're going to die pretty quickly. So, hey. And then I found within the motorcycle culture, there's even a subculture of how you wave depending on what kind of bike you ride. So if you ride like a Honda Rebel, you know, like a 450, like sit up, like nee, 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 that kind of bike, this was the wave you'd just straight up, hi, and then back down. If you rode a bike like I did, a murder cycle, the, the wave is very different because you're kind of crouched down. You're in a very aggressive state. I call it the, you, you just did a very quick like that. It was like, huh, I don't have time for this. I'm going fast, 100 miles per hour in a second, just quick and then go. And then the last group, if you get a motorcycle, this will save your life. The Harley riders, the Harley riders, they're like this and they do what I call the low two, just a quick like down, they point to the ground, low two, then back on the handlebars. And you cannot make eye contact with them. 
That's an act of aggression. They'll fight you. You look at me, you're dead, right? So you don't look at them. You do the low two and you keep riding. Just eye straight forward, right? We have all these subcultures. Paul says, listen, learn to contextualize the gospel to every subculture that's around you. Learn to bring it into their language. Learn to bring it into who they are because we wanna see people saved. So culturally, then morally, law people, rule people. Today, that would be your Rotary Club people, your Elks Lodge people, your Shriners. Like, hey, we're good people. We do good things and they do. Paul says, I became like them. I talk to people all the time that say, I don't need Jesus, I'm a good person. I say, oh man, I'm, I'm glad you're a good person, right? We need good people. And I always go like, what does good mean? Jesus said this, he said, if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Jesus says, if you're angry with somebody, that it's like murder. You ever been angry with somebody? You ever drive behind a moron who's driving? You ever get angry at that moment, right? Right? So it's not just actions. Jesus says, evil goes deeper than that. It gets into your heart. Or I bring out Francis Schaeffer's brilliant, brilliant thought. He said, imagine this. Imagine when you're born, there's hung around your neck this recorder that records every time you tell somebody how to live. Be nicer. Love your neighbor. Share. Don't steal that. Don't take that. Right? Don't lie. Whatever it is, every time you make a moral statement to somebody else about how they should live, that recorder just turns on and records that. So then you go stand before God. And God says, I'm not gonna judge you. Your own words will judge you. How did you keep your own rules? Did you do what you told other people to do? And every one of us would say, I failed that test, right? You might think you're a good person, it just depends on who you're comparing yourself to. I'm not as bad as Hitler. Okay, great, you didn't slaughter six million people. No one's saying I'm as good as Mother Teresa, rescuing orphan and sick person in the slums of Calcutta, right? What's our measure? What's our measure? Paul says you gotta learn to speak to the moral people or he says the amoral people, people that have no law. Right? This is the boatnik crew. This is the four by four crew. This is the go out and burn stuff in the woods crew. This is, you know, shoot guns and go crazy and fun, man. They're fun, but you got to learn how to communicate to them, right? Same thing. How do I contextualize this to people that are just running crazy, having a fun time? And okay, how do I do that? You got to learn, Paul says. I learned to do that. And I love this one to the weak. I love that about Paul. Paul is the superhero of the New Testament. And to weak people, he didn't say, what's wrong with you, man? Pull yourself up. Why are you so broken? What's... Paul didn't say that. To the weak, I became as weak. Paul would say, man, I know. I know the struggle. Romans 7, he would say, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do. Wait a second here. The things that I do want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to, oh man, you get it. Paul says, I'm weak. I know how it is. I've got good intentions, but my good intentions don't always take me where I want to go. Paul says, I know. But I think he'd say there's good news 
2 Corinthians 12, 9, where we are weak, he is strong. That's the good news. Fall on Jesus. Trust him to be your strength. Wake up in the morning and pray, give me my daily bread. So Paul says, to all men, I became all things for one reason. One reason, that they might be saved. Saved from what? Right? Saved from what? Romans chapter five, verses eight and nine puts it like this. God demonstrated his love towards us that while we're yet sinners, when we were our worst, Christ died for us. Wow. Keep going on, verse nine. To save us from the wrath that's to come. Huh? Yeah. First Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, there's wrath coming. The final book in the Bible, Revelation. Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17. The kings, the powerful, during this time, they prayed that the rocks of the mountain come and squish them to save them from the wrath of the lamb. How bad must it be to pray to a giant boulder, please fall on me? I think sometimes we forget. We forget that what's coming. Paul's motivation here is real simple. How are people saved from the wrath that's coming? And Jesus Christ is the only thing that saves us from the coming wrath. That's it. So I want to become all things to all people that all by any means they might be saved. So when I got worried or worried about people embarrassing myself or what they might think about me, I just remember this. I remember Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Huh, I'll take a little embarrassment, right? So number one, Paul says, my ministry method, I don't do those things that other people did. They have the right to. I became all things to all people. And number two, Paul says, I'm in it to win it. Look at this. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Be in it to win it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, I'm in it to win it. So he's talking to the city of Corinth. We know about the Olympics, no doubt. But there was games in Corinth. They were called the Isthmian Games because they're on that isthmus there. And their main event was a big giant, we found it, a big track, 606 and three-quarter feet long, or a 200-yard dash, or me, a non-runner, a marathon. Not doing it, right? And so they would run that. And all the runners would run 
to do one thing, to win, <laughs> right? They're all there to win. Paul says, that's good, that we should be in it to win it. Well, how, Coach Paul? How do we be in it to win it? He gives us three simple ways. Number one, you gotta know life is linked. Notice what he says about an athlete. Every athlete, verse 25, exercises self-control in all things. That's an underliner. Life is linked together. My spiritual life is not gonna happen on a Sunday or a Wednesday for 45 minutes. It's what am I doing with the other 167 hours of my life? Because life is linked together. I learned that, I think, when I was about 22 years old and going to Oregon State University and we got a new roommate. Six foot four, 270 pound, Johnny Garrett offensive tackle for the OSU Beavers. And he moved in and I could not believe how regimented his life was. They had a curfew for him to go to sleep. They had a time for him to come wake up in the morning and they had a diet they, they had him on. They wanted him to get to 290, 270. They wanted him to gain 20 pounds. So they gave him this like these giant tubs of weight gain powder and then like big things of peanut butter and even ice cream and then a blender that looked like a five-gallon bucket with a boat motor hooked to it. Like it was huge. And he would just dump in just like peanut butter, ice cream, and whole milk, and then just walk around our apartment drinking this five-gallon bucket of stuff. And it messed with his digestive system. He was an offensive tackle. I'll tell you that much, man. Goodness. All right? Every bit of his life was orchestrated. Why? because they knew it's not Saturday that wins games. It's what you do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, right? Paul's saying life is linked. That what I choose to engage myself in, what, it, what I'm entertained by, what I read, what I'm influenced by, the activities I participate in that, all that is building who I am. I think too often Christians ask what I think are minimalizing questions. Like, is it okay if I watch an R-rated movie? Is it okay if I have a shot of whiskey? Is it okay if I smoke a little marijuana? Like, there's all these like minimalist questions that Christians ask. And my answer to those are always this. Here's the better question to ask. Maximizing questions. Ask, does this activity give me more of Jesus Christ? That's the question to ask. Everything else delves into legalism and just weediness. Just ask, does this give me more of Jesus Christ? That's being in it to win it. It's what Paul would have asked. So number one, you gotta know if you're gonna be in this thing to win it, life is linked. Everything we're doing builds who you and I are. Number two, race for a reward. Paul says these guys run because they want to win a perishable reef, right? They just want to win this. It was just a little, a olive kind of woven crown. That was all it. But they're in it for a reward. People work out really hard. They go to the gym, right? January 1st, gym memberships go through the roof. February 1st, they're all canceled, <laughs> right? And we can work out hard, and that's not a bad thing. Right? I got a goal. I want a six-pack, right? I want abs, 
And that's fantastic. You work hard, you get your six pack of abs, but you are one week and about a gallon of lucerne ice cream from having an ab. It's just that simple. It's perishable. Paul says, listen, godliness has rewards now. It has rewards called the fruit of the spirit, love and joy and peace and long suffering and meekness and temperance. It has rewards in how you are as a parent, as a neighbor, as a worker, as a spouse. It has rewards in eternity as well. Because scripture says God has given us these talents, some of them as time, some of them as giftings, and when you use them, you get more talents, and those talents are gonna matter through all of eternity. Man, you run for reward, never forget that. God is a debtor to no man. How we race, how we run, how we do life, God rewards you and me in this life and in the one to come. And then he says, you gotta go for your goal. I don't run aimlessly. Literally in the Greek, it's there zigzagging. If you're gonna win a marathon, if you're gonna win a race, what can't you do? Zigzag, right? You gotta go as straight of a line as possible. You gotta get a goal out there, 50-yard dash. I'm headed for that. I want that ribbon. Gotta have goals. Goals can transform a man. Do you know that? Had this buddy, Josh Bossard. I knew him a bit here, but then we ended up in the islands of Vanuatu together for about a year. And Josh, I'd always ask him, like, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to plant a church. I'd say, what do you want to do, Josh? We're over there in ministry, lots of time with each other. He's like, I don't know, I don't know. For the first three months, it was kind of aimless. And then he got a goal. He said, I am going to be a missionary to China. He ordered all these cassettes, because it was 1999. And the cassettes were how to learn Chinese. And he would walk around with his tape player and headphones on, just repeating like, Xing Hua, Xing Hua, like doing whatever, Xing, mowing, Xing, like just, it was nonstop for six months straight. He just listened to tape after tape after tape after tape, going to China. When we, Dominic and I, left the 84 degree every day of Vanuatu paradise and got on a plane and flew to Grant's Pass where it was 40 degrees and I was freezing. Should have probably ditched the grass skirt, but hey, Vanuatu was still in me. Freezing. He left to this place called Harbin, China. It was minus 18 degrees. It's called the Ice City. When he told me he was going there, I said, the nickname is Ice City. That means for me, not God's will. That's exactly what that means for me. I'm not going there. He goes to Harbin, China. The stories he has of what God did with him there is unbelievable. He'd be on a train and someone would come up to him and say, because China's not as religiously free as we are. Come up and sit next to him and say, God told me to meet you on this train. It's just, and he's got tons of the, that happening. Bringing Bibles and just, un, it's, it's unbelievable. He lived with a Russian roommate for a while who learned all of his English from blockbuster movies. So he's like going to the bathroom, I'll be back. What, bro? Right, do you feel lucky? Well, do you punk? Hey, that doesn't work, man. <laughs> so just, just these fantastic stories. Why? Because he got a goal. I'm not running aimless anymore. I know what God has for me. I had a goal in Vanuatu. It was to systematically study the entire Bible. 
I was told it will take 1,400 hours. Now that seems daunting at first. And then I figured out this is how many weeks I have. So it's 35 hours a week. It's five hours a day. And for the whole time I was there, I spent five hours a day systematically studying the Bible. And I was able to leave Vanuatu with this foundation of scripture that now for 24 years, 23 years, I've been able to build on. And I'm so glad I had that goal. Paul says, don't be aimless, have goals. Right? We're nearing 2023. Every year, I always take a little time to reflect and think, okay, how was last year? What was good? What was not? What do I want? What, what are my goals for 2023? It's a really good discipline to have. How am I running my race? Am I in it to win it? Am I hearing God's spirit? Do I know the high costs of this thing called the Christian walk? And am I willing to pay, pay the price? Paul says, be in it to win it. It's brilliant. Can I suggest in these next couple days, before the first, just take some time. Pray these things through. Jesus' life is linked. How am I doing with my other 165 hours? How am I doing with them? I wanna race for reward. How are things, am I experiencing the fruit of God's spirit? Is it evidence in my, evident in my life? Do I have a goal? Goals are really important. Do I have a goal? What am I about? What am I aiming at? If you don't aim at anything, you'll hit it every time. Have an aim. God will give it to you like he did for Josh. So Jesus tonight, thank you for the example of Paul who willingly gave up his rights because of his love for other people. I'm convicted of that because I can so easily defend my rights, demand my rights, and it can be ugly. May each one of us listen to the words of Paul here be willing to be defrauded if it's truly for the betterment of somebody else. May we willingly abstain from things that offend other people, even though they're within our rights, because we're balancing our rights with what's best with other people. May we be a group of people that become all things to all people that by all means, some might be saved. May we be a group of people that are in this thing to win the prize that you have for each one of us individually. We're running our race not against each other. We're running our race to end up before your throne, receiving crowns for our faithfulness. May we know that's the goal. And so go with us and fill us and empower us, I pray. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.